If you're looking for a clean, sober, professional, academic, well-researched, historically accurate, generally accurate, serious podcast on Southern folklore, ghosts, bizarre events, and unique people, this podcast is not for you. However, if you've decided you can live with that, then join us for The Strange South. Hi, Marleya. Hey, guys. Hey, Courtney. Courtney. (laughs) Tell us about our drink. Oh, yeah. We're sipping slowly today. Yes. This is a classic. Vucare, right? Vucare, classic New Orleans cocktail, kind of like an old fashioned. It's basically whiskey with cognac, (laughs) more liquor, vermouth. And some bitters, it's straight all alcohol. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Trees are like many uh-huh. ounces of it. So slowly mm-hmm. and enjoy. It has a good flavor though. It does. Uh, I like it. Fill in it. Yeah. yeah, the orange is like rocking. And we have a king cake from Artisanal Baked Goods in Aniston. So like sugar content and liquor content. Bing. Yeah, Mardi Gras style indulge. Ibuprofen before we leave here. Just like some more water proactively. <laughs> oh, so good though. The king cake is so good. Mm-hmm. Thanks, Teddy. Um, yeah, it's very good. Yes. Party. So Sorry. this is <laughs> <laughs> my brain is obviously not here. I'm just mm. like I'm really excited, and then I just go into a coma. <laughs> Sugar coma. Sugar coma for real. Yeah, so we are we just got um, done with Valentine's Day, mm-hmm. and now we're moving into Mardi Gras season, full force. Even though we're kind of landlocked and not within the Mardi Gras area of New Orleans and um, Mobile, Mobile, right? And all and all the little towns in between that I'm sure celebrate with parades. And drinking. And drinking. University of West Florida shuts down the streets uh, in Pensacola, even. Wow. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's right. You told me that. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, not only just fun time of year, it's like huge tourist. I mean, if I was on the coast anywhere near New Orleans, I'd be like, Mardi Gras, bitches. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Later. <laughs> I'm doing my religious duty. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, this is us full force. <laughs> right. Right. We're like, <laughs> and we like had the music, like, like had it, some yeah, Zydeco. It, it so much we had masks and, and stuff in here. All these things that you can't see. Right. <laughs> We're Wait, having a great it, time. Listen, Too bad you beads. can't see it. This beads. beads. Yeah. <laughs> Courtney just splashed us. You know, <laughs> it's just like Mardi Gras. Oh, dude, I'm <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> Yeah, so oh. that's the that's tis the season. Yeah, and it, you know it feels like we haven't done this in a while since we like switched to our schedule. Yeah, and I miss it, mm-hmm. but I'm also like really thankful to have that little breather. Yeah, um, just so that I could have a story and didn't have to like worry with it. Like I really wanted this to be like if we started worrying with it, then we like we need to step back. So mm-hmm. I'm glad we're able to like tone it down, like doing it every other week, but. I still miss it. I think I just missed having time to do things that I wanted to do. I know. I know. <laughs> do adult things that I have to get paid for so I can, like, pay the bills. <laughs> so fun. We're like, we're bohemians at heart, but oh, we're adults no. in real life. Oh, no. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
Hmm. What were you going to say? I'm not really sure where I was going with that. Other than I'm glad to be here. Uh, I'm glad Courtney's feeling better. I'm glad we're all doing better, I think, Mm -hmm. mentally. I feel like I'm in a better mental place than I have been in a while. That's good. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. So, thank you, meds. Um, <laughs> thank you, people, for like continuing to listen to us. And yes, for, for being cool with our switch up of schedule. Oh, but like um, we said, we hope it'll be temporary because yes, gonna, we're yeah, we're still back. two weeks away from Mardi Gras, so we're kind of no. celebrating early so that you guys can have it. We are at Mardi Gras, mm-hmm. absolutely. And um, also, I wanted to put this out there to everyone that's listening on the front end. Uh, we are talking about like having, you know, hitting the road a little bit this summer, maybe, mm-hmm. and traveling and doing some live shows. So, if you have a venue that you would like us to come to, maybe, then, you know, hit us up on our socials and um, we'd be happy to kind of scope it out and see, you know, what's viable yeah, and, and what us, we can do. Help us make some schedules. <laughs> Help us. Help us do all the things. We've had a couple people respond to that, like, call for help that we did a couple of episodes ago. If you're good at anything, will you please let us know? Volunteer your talents. We've had a very nice photographer reach out to us. Yeah, Super cool. Yeah, Really cool work. So. Absolutely. Um, but, uh, yeah, cool. I've got um, – I had a couple notes. Do you have more before you – I have a I, – I just got one thing I wanted to talk about a little bit. It has nothing to do with uh, – what we've done in like last week or anything like that, but just some thoughts because I watched Troop Zero. Have you seen Troop Zero? We saw an on ad Amazon, for it, but haven't watched it. So mm-hmm. you know, Viola Davis, absolutely love her, mm-hmm. and it was like Jim Gaffigan who oh, was like I know what you're talking from about New York, mm-hmm. but playing a southerner, uh, southern Georgia lawyer. Um, which, okay, he's a little over the top, but, you know, and I think that's what kind of like as a Southerner watching a movie that's supposed to be about the South mm-hmm. and then having like it just the Southern accents just like kill me. Like, you know, <laughs> even if they are from the South, you know, having it just over the top mm-hmm. just so that we get the point like, yes, we know you're Southerner, you're <laughs> Southern. But it was really well done. I enjoyed it a lot. And the little girl that's like the... um the main actor in this, she like, she reminded me of so many different people growing up. And she was like one of those really uh, curious kids about everything and just love. You could tell that she just loves life and mm-hmm. she's just vibrate. She is literally vibrating. And she has like a really good, like young southern country accent Mm -hmm. like so to me she like she like stole the show she was so good um but one problem that i had because of course i'm going to nitpick it because i'm like okay this is georgia Mm -hmm. this is kids growing up in the 70s uh in the south which i feel like i'm an expert being growing up in the (laughs) south in 70s and like rural area uh all of them had shoes and socks Oh, and it's like every single one of them, and like she, her main th- shoes were like red galoshes. That was mm-hmm. like her thing, and I'm like, there is not a single kid in the South during the '70s that would like willingly put shoes on <laughs> for anything to go play with other kids. Mm-hmm. Like that, just you know, 
And if they did have shoes, it would be flip flops. Mm -hmm. Like it was not like clean tennis shoes with like ankle socks mm -hmm. and that they showed. So I was a little disappointed there. <laughs> So that was it. Patrice wants more feet. More feet. <laughs> more honest, honest barefoot moon kind of feet. Because <laughs> that's what it was. Especially like, even if you were going to go to water, like get your feet wet or get mm -hmm. some, you know, where you want a sturdier shoe, it would be like a slip on tennis shoe or something. There would be no socks involved. Mm -mm. Southern kids don't have socks. There's no need. <laughs> it's like it doesn't get cold in the summertime. So you don't need socks. <laughs> so. And that was my only thing. But you should really watch it. So Troop Zero, it's like a really good little feel-good movie. We'll have to try because we we tried, Courtney and I tried to watch Little Monsters. Was that last week? We tried to watch it with the, it was like about the annoying ass dude oh, and his the guitar. Zombie the zombie movie. With, uh, because we looked at, Lupita, we saw it. Lupita yeah. Oh. Yes. Yeah. And we, because we saw the, <laughs> I made a joke. I was like, you know, it's a yellow cover. So it's. It's got to be a good movie because, like, all the, all the, like, independent films have yellow covers and, like, sunbursts oh, and stuff on them. Right? So I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And the trailer looked really funny, but apparently the trailer was all the funny. All the funny. And they, the they just had a good that they were going with, the male character, was so fucking annoying that we just turned yeah, it off. You, uh, we were like, no, his, their point was no he was annoying, for him but it was it. like, oh, no, I, don't, I, I got nothing. Very I got nothing for you. Development there, and the rest, too. and there was nothing else to to move the movie forward so we were just like oh god this sucks and then as we were turning it off we saw a little ad for troop zero come up and we we're like there's the movie we should have watched yes. and we never got back to it you but. should Lola davis like changed smoking through the whole thing it's was, it was brilliant i love her i love her so much anyway so that was my only little like watch troop zero mm. We watched um, Zombieland uh, Double Tap. Oh, that how was, was that? Funny. Was it good? <laughs> yeah. I mean, it is exactly what you want it to be. be. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was good. That's cool. It had some real laugh out loud moments. But I I don't know if I've ever said this on the show before, but I'm like my... I've, you might have noticed that my sense of humor is slightly immature. <laughs> and so like, if somebody gets hit in the head with something or falls down, I will laugh for like 20 minutes straight. <laughs> so like do that and you've got me. I'm sold. And that happened a little. So I was like, all right, this is my movie. That's funny. Um, okay, that's it for me. I wanted to say thanks to everybody who provided captions for our birthday oh, Instagram. Yes. That was Courtney's, oh, uh, yeah, was Courtney's idea, gosh. right? To post, it, to post that picture as a caption. This was really funny. And those of you who said it had something to do with testicles, you were correct. You were correct. <laughs> the thing about it is, though, Marleya looked a little startled because I just put the hat on her. Mm -hmm. And I was on my way like to the restroom. And I was like, I've got to tell you what my hairdresser told me about <laughs> testicles. So, and mean, left. Now, now you understand the look on my face. Things you learn at the Things salon. Things you learn. <laughs> and well, the Mexican restaurant. Yes. yes. Oh, man. So, yes. So, so yeah, that was fun. Thank that was a lot of fun. Thank you for that participating. That was my first outing, too. Yes, because awesome. Courtney hadn't been really out of the house. So, yeah, it was parties for everyone. Mm -hmm. It was fun. Thank you all so much. That was a great birthday. And we had, what, a couple of show notes. One of them, um, our friend Jen was listening to the show 
Um, she was a couple episodes behind and she called me on her way home from Birmingham and she's just like, I just knew that I had to tell you this. And if I didn't call you, I would forget. And she's like, I need you to know that the show Outlander had an episode that included a reference to a tobacco smoke enema. (laughs) (laughs) So if anybody, if any of you watch Outlander and you caught that, you, you're in good company. And also Courtney, you remembered something from last episode that you, you didn't get to say. Oh yeah. From the, um. Pandemic. Spanish flu episode. The, you know, you were talking about literature and um, how it's not referenced that much. And now we know why, right? It was kept so secret. But one the one thing I knew about the Spanish flu, people are going to hate me for this. You think I'm so lame. But I learned from Twilight. <laughs> and I remembered, and I checked to make sure, but that's, Edward. Why, that's why Edward became a vampire because he was dying of the Spanish flu. And uh, whoever his father figured, right. Car. car- Carlisle, Carlisle. Yeah, mm-hmm. turned him so that he wouldn't die of Spanish flu. That's <laughs> about all I knew about the Spanish Courtney flu. was like, it does appear in literature. <laughs> like, it was literature. recent literature. <laughs> literature um, it appeared in a book. <laughs> <laughs> yes, 1918 oh. is when he was changed from wow. Spanish flu. So there you go. There you go. Random Oh, I guarantee. Knowledge. I guarantee you're not the only one that knew that one. I guarantee no, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> and uh what else we had oh oh no that's something i i need to talk to you about that i guess and get with our a friend of ours who has a story about um a place in georgia that i've thought about talking about i i okay this is yeah what this is <laughs> not something, it's a super not secret. something that needs to be on the i'm sorry we can't tell you it's a secret <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. No, I'm keep all do my we notes to, together. Do we have to like stop it so y'all can tell me and then start getting it? No, I'll tell you after. But okay. somebody's gonna have to remind me because the whole reason it just came out of my mouth is because I forget things as soon as they come out of my mouth. Okay. Chalkboard. So yeah. There's your chalkboard. Both of you have them I right know. there. I got mine right there. Do you got your So in case you wonder they really use those? Yes, we do. I still I have see them wipe them with their hands and it really creeps me out. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay, gotcha. All right. So is that it for you? Yep. All right. So I think I go first today. And being in the Mardi Gras spirit. Oh, good. You're in the Mardi Gras spirit. I'm, I didn't do one like that. Okay. So. Awesome. <laughs> okay, good. I was like, oh, shit. Did you just, <laughs> are we doing the same thing? Nope. No. Kind of okay. forgot it was going to be the Mardi Gras, didn't you? And you'd picked it already. I had something else in mind already, so. Mm-hmm. Okay, hold on. Let me, like, enlarge my text so that I can, like, actually read it from my screen. So today I'm going to talk about the murders on Ursuline Avenue. Ursuline, like a convent, Ursuline. Well, it does. It is oh. like is related. So we talked about the Ursuline nuns and yes, their convent the on the Casket, Casket Girls, Girls, which is episode Ooh. forty-four. So right around the corner, because actually the Ursuline convent is not on Ursuline Avenue, but it is like right around the corner, mm-hmm. and. Um, the Ursuline part that I'm talking about is kind of a very specific area. Um, it's like right between uh, Royal and Bourbon Street. So just like a block, basically. Uh, but, you know, there's three different murders that I want to talk about. And um, and it said like this particular area is said to be like haunted by an evil ghost or an evil spirit. However, they call this spirit um, 
the sausage ghost. What? Oh my God, you're doing the sausage ghost. <laughs> you know it? Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> and it's yes. Be- Sorry, and it's I'm because, okay, and it's because like four murders have taken place between three homes, all within like four houses apart of mm-hmm. this area. So the first one in the mid-1800s, the second one in the 1920s, and the third one in uh, 2002. And the reason, like, it, these are all kind of related, they all kind of have a theme going. Not only, like, are they related, like, geographically, but they all have a theme. And, and that uh, theme is sausage. <laughs> the theme is sausage. <laughs> but to get to this theme, um, you know, back in the 1920s, you know, during that time, that area, you know, had kind of a uh, kind of a renaissance. It's where like writers and artists would go in the twenties. It, you know, they had like the arts and crafts club. They had like the double dealer literary magazine. Uh, there was uh, lots of writers that would go there and write and you know talk and drink together and stuff. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of the famous writers at the time was Lyle Saxton and he actually like he was uh, a well-known writer there in New Orleans in the 20s and he was also a reporter for the Picayune Times and he wrote he wrote many books but one of the uh, the books that he's most known for that would relate to us mostly he wrote Gumbo Yaya Mm. which is like one of they hold it up as like the Louisiana folklore uh, book that you should read. It's like one of the most famous ones that you should read. And one of the tales from that we're, I'm going to talk about comes from this book. Um, so again, you know, I was sitting here and I was reading all of this about, you know, the artists and the writers and everybody's living the bohemian lifestyle in this area. And it's because of the lower rents and because of the, just the old world aesthetics uh, of the vocarie, which is where I came across. And I was like, oh, we got to have that drink. And I like texted Courtney and Courtney's like, Yes. I know. I already did it. Yeah, she already planned. I already so planned weird. on it. That's right. I forgot. I was like, I texted you back and said, "I swear, ask Marleya. I just told her this has mm-hmm. to be our drink." That was so weird. So, uh, so anyway, let's talk about the sausage ghost. <laughs> sausage. So, in the mid uh, eighteen, <laughs> thinking about your story last week. Too. I know. I thought it was kind of kind of related. Thought there wasn't a theme. <laughs> Uh, like in the mid eighteen uh, fifties, uh, there was this uh, man Hans Mueller. He had immigrated to the U.S. from Germany with his wife. Um, he was a butcher by trade, and so they set up this sausage factory in seven twenty five uh, Ursuline Avenue, which again is right around the corner from the convent. And so the factory was in the bottom floor, and they lived on the second floor. And it was, like, really successful. They became very popular in their community. Everybody knew about them. Everybody bought sausages from them. However, it, like, kind of took a toll on their marriage. And some of the stories were, like, uh, Mueller had hired a young woman, a much attractive younger woman, to kind of assist his wife with day-to-day running of the households. And eventually Mueller began to have an affair with this woman and, of course, making the wife angry, Mm -hmm. right? And so it says that, you know, she's threatened to fire the young woman, Mueller. And that's the reason that Mueller is like, I got to get rid of my wife there. Well, in <laughs> the, uh, uh, the Gumbo Yaya book, 
it's pretty much kind of the same way, except for, uh, and this is like, it's written like by somebody who remembers this, because I think when um, the author died, it was like 1946 or something. And he wrote about this, like maybe a couple of years, the book came out like maybe a year beforehand. So it was like, towards the end of his life. And I don't know if he was interviewing people. I don't know, like, you know, if that's how he was getting his folklore because I haven't done a lot of research on this. <laughs> so anyway, he says that one night Hans pushed his wife into the big meat grinder in the factory. Mm-hmm. And it was because he, she had like lost her beauty and he was just getting, Son of a bitch. he was tired of like, you know, cause he had taken the toll on his wife and she was getting old and haggardly and he just rather, like, that's it. Your sausage. Your sausage. <laughs> Exactly. Um, Yeah, I think we left with sausage jokes. And we return with sausage jokes. And we return with sausage jokes. Because why? What happened? We don't know what happened. So, yes, this little interruption is... Okay, the red light's on. Brought to you by... It's brought to you by... We don't know. The ghost of the pod basement. (laughs) Doesn't like us talking about sausage. I wonder if Claudia is mad. So we just lost like 20 minutes, 30 minutes of Of, me talking through these stories. In which I'm fisting to retell you. So all of our surprise from here on out is completely (laughs) manufactured. (laughs) Get ready for us to feign shock. Well, fuck. Well, at least we like the stories the yeah, first time no, around. So it'll be yes. good. They're good stories. Get ready. It's going to be right, exciting. Here we go. So from uh, Gumbo Yaya, mm-hmm. uh, he interviewed this woman and apparently like her mother knew the the, uh, the Mueller's. I hope I'm saying that right. I, I don't think fucking so. care. I think okay. I think you are. Yeah. All right. And she said that one night Hans pushed his wife into the big old meat grinder in the factory and there was nothing left of her. Uh, a few days later, customers began to complain because there was like bits of bone and cloth in their sausage. And even the girl that he was supposedly having the affair with or the one that he was lusting after heard gossip and like was latest. She didn't want to have anything to do with him mm-hmm. and would not see him anymore. I wouldn't either. Oh, no, absolutely. You don't want to be sausage either. <laughs> exactly. Nobody wants to be sausage. Nobody wants to be sausage. So one night after all this happened, you know, he had told everybody that she had left town when they were asking where his wife was, but he started hearing thump, thump, thump around the boiler vat. And he saw the bloody ghost of his wife with her head crushed in to pulp coming towards uh. him. And it totally freaked him out. And he went screaming. And then all of his his neighbors uh, came out and he was like, I'm just having a bad dream. Uh, and then they were like, well, where's your wife? Why isn't she comforting you? And that's when he said like, you know, she went out of town. She's, oh my God, I've never, <laughs> she's out of town. <laughs> why, is it, like, why isn't your wife comforting you? <laughs> why do I have to come knock on your goddamn door at two <laughs> exactly. in the morning? Where's your wife? <laughs> where's your wife? Uh, the, um, then a customer like found a bit of gold wedding ring in the sausage and she called the police and they found Hans in his, <laughs> in his factory screaming and crying like a raven maniac. And he kept saying that his wife was coming out of the sausage grinder and would get him. So he spent the rest of his life 
basically in an insane asylum. And another man bought the factory and weird shit was happening. And, you know, the ghost would appear and it wouldn't go away until uh, Mueller, who was like in the asylum, committed suicide. And then the phantom never appeared again. And the lady who was like relaying the story said that my mother ate some of the sausage (laughs) Mrs. Mueller was made into. (laughs) And so that's all in the uh, Gumbo Yaya folktales of Louisiana by this author in the 1920s. What does it do to you, I wonder, if you eat people's sausage and you, like, enjoyed it? <laughs> Down the road. What does it do to you? <laughs> Down the road. You're like, oh. Do like, <laughs> ethically or I don't know, like, just physically? Mentally to yourself, like, to realize that you ate people's sausage and it well, was tasty. Well, that people was... yummy. Like how, if you could, if you could say that to yourself, like what would that do to you? Well, there's the whole, uh, what is it? The mountain, you know, the story of the people who had to eat the, the right, yeah, this, oh, oh, on the mountain, yeah, yeah. in order to survive. Their, yeah. So we automatically know that Marilea would like cease being a vegetarian <laughs> oh my to God. survive and would eat your ass. <laughs> <laughs> Tasty but cheap. Because that was like the first thing that they cut. Then it was the buttocks. Mm-hmm. On yeah, the, the buttocks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. Well, Frozen I guess it's probably the-, the least personable of all the parts, right? I mean, just yeah. kind of, I, it's I, just a field of imagination the buttocks is right <laughs> God, this is yes. way darker than the original yes. version of this I am not a oh my gosh okay. so I yeah I'm gonna leave out the story about the horse and the pastor oh no tell that story I okay. like that story okay so uh when I was reading this, you know, all of this is just, I looked in the newspapers and I couldn't find like any Hans Mueller uh, in New Orleans, like having been convicted of murder and stuff, which will like the Times Picayune, like we have access to old records, like in the 1850s, if anything like that had happened. And um, because that was very sensational. But it's like people making shit up about, especially like, you know, a sausage factory. Mm -hmm. And it reminded me of a time like me and my friend and um, his dad went through the Delta. uh, And we I forgot, like we were going somewhere and we always like went past this particular place. And they're like, this has the best barbecue ever. And it's like in the middle of fucking nowhere. It's like, you know, just this little side road thing. And there's uh, a little... um, was it called a paddock or mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. next to the store? And and his dad goes, well, there's always, he's like, it's really good barbecue, but just know there's always like a different horse every time I drive by this place, <laughs> insinuating like the barbecue is delicious horse meat. Uh, and then I, you know, so that was like the running joke. So it kind of like, I could see people saying that about, you know, a butcher or somebody that does sausage, which is just weird ground up meat. Of and any kind, and you never there. know what's in there. And but you can buy um, Hans Mueller sausage, which is like a really big thing in Germany. Uh, the the Mueller family, <laughs> like made of the may, they like have sausage <laughs> in Germany, and it's like a big thing. That, and it came over to the U.S. And there's places. I think mainly in Ohio. Um, 
What is wrong with you, Ohio? I don't, in German, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, and so, if I look, yeah, I looked it up, and there's actually like the Hans Mueller sausage you can buy online from Farm Pack Kitchen's website I if you're interested in, in the German sausage of Hans Mueller <laughs> and whatever that may entail. <laughs> the German sausage of Hans Mueller. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh my god. It says it has been enjoyed by meat countless meat lovers all over the world. I'm sure it has. <laughs> Hans Mueller's sausage has been enjoyed by many meat lovers. And German uh. sausage. All right. So in the twenties, when this uh book was being like written or when you know the writers and the artists all came down to the French Quarter, and uh, it was still like mainly a working class neighborhood. It hadn't tourism obviously had not kicked in yet. Uh, a lot of the industry, like dealing with the ports and you know ships and goods coming in, was dealt with all there around the French Quarter. A really like they call this like one of the most brutal crimes in New Orleans, and this was called the trunk murders. And like I said earlier, which you don't know because you didn't hear me earlier, <laughs> but I was talking about the trunk murders was like a fucking classification of murders yeah. that I didn't know. Again, it's like the the hood, like the sack murders. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that was a classification. So trunk murders are like you can look up famous trunk murders. So it's apparently a thing. Ugh. Yeah. People are gross. But not human torso trunk. Mm. Which is kind of what I thought you meant at first. Oh, no. oh, yeah, yeah, like torso murders, which is well, also a yeah. subcategory. It of is murder. a subcategory. Yeah. yeah, we're talking. Yeah, we're talking about like the actual like luggage, and so um, this next happened in the twenties at seven fifteen Ursuline uh, Avenue, which is right next door to the former sausage factory, and it has to do with Teresa and uh, Lenita Moiti. And they were both, like, women in their 20s who were married to two brothers, Henry and I can't remember his fucking name. It Henry. was another regular name. It was a regular name. Thomas? Thomas. Yeah. Well, we'll find out soon when I get to that part. <laughs> <laughs> so they were married to two brothers. They had three children, and they lived in, like, this really small apartment. And the husbands were said to be kind of shiftless and often drunk and unemployed. And in some of the stories, the men often worked as butchers. Well, and we know specifically that one was a butcher in, in the hometown that they came from. Mm -hmm. And so on the afternoon of Thursday, October 27, 1927, uh, Nettie Compass entered the second floor apartment there on 715 Ursuline Street, as it was called at the time, to do some cleaning. And she had barely set foot into um, the apartment before she, like, noticed traces of blood. And so it freaked her out, and she went and called for help. And those people called the police, and the responding officers came in and discovered, like, this really horrific murder scene. There was like two small traveling trunks that were packed with expertly butchered corpses of the two young women. There was blood-soaked mattresses where the victims were slain. There were like several fingers on the floor. The bathroom was covered in blood. There was clothes everywhere where they had like moved the clothes out of the trunks to put the women in. Um, and the coroner said like 
that they were first like bludgeoned in the head with a billy club before that they were decapitated with a machete and amputated their arms and their legs. So he like fully butchered them. And that's one of the things that they said that that he could tell that this wasn't just a hack job, that the person knew what they were doing Mm because he dislocated them at the joints instead of just trying to hack through bone. So again, um, you know, the women, Teresa and Lenita Moiti, I just have so hard time like That's putting a, a mouth around that. Moiti. Moiti. Yeah. Moiti. Um, we're married to Henry and Joseph. Joseph. That's what it was. And they were brothers. And they had like moved there from New Iberia, which was Canada. Uh, no, it was a parish. <laughs> it was a parish. From, was from yeah. Canada. Canada. Is it Canada? I that. That was wrong. You didn't hear that either. Yeah. You're good. I was trying to make them Canadian. Canadian and Canada. So yeah. So yeah, from uh, the parish, and they just moved to New Orleans. So there was really limited information about the two women, and of course, like. Everything was focused mainly on the men and not the victim. Anything that was focused on the victims were basically that they were allegedly having affairs and that they were really bad parents, careless parenting, which I'm like, hey, it takes two to parent. Seriously. And like, what the fuck does that have to do with anything? Absolutely. (laughs) Right? So they deserved it. And so they deserve to die. You know, honestly, anybody who could parent any child with like, how many other people? They said they they all had small children and the the two couples had children and they all lived in a one room apartment together. Right. How do you do anything? Right. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. How do you? Yeah. No, that's like grounds for murdering everybody, (laughs) basically. So, um. They did find a story that uh, Leonita wrote, they discovered in the cabinet of her bedroom. And it's basically a really like thin veiled autobiographical account that she had tried to publish, but it was rejected. And I don't know if like her husband found this and this kind of set him off. It doesn't sound like he needed much setting off. Mm -hmm. He was already in his mind to do this. But um, basically... You know, they, the story is actually partly published in the Times Picayune, and I, I haven't like looked it up or found it. But she wrote it when she was still living in New Iberia, and it's like a cautionary tale presented as like a personal letter, and it speaks of like finding joy after a failed marriage. So I don't know if she had like had a previous marriage or if the marriage she was in was failed or what the perspective is. Again, because I haven't read it, and so. You know, it's talking about despite the poverty, the author writes of living happily with her husband and their young children in her small hometown. She concludes it with like an ominous warning, like now to you readers, young girls, especially, please think ahead of you and do not make the mistake I've made because it does not always turn out the right way. You can still be disappointed. Guess it was only my luck to be happy like this. So I warn others not to take the same risk. So it's just kind of a weird, it's, it's kind of like, I don't know if she was planning on leaving her husband to be happy. Um, and she was telling girls that you don't need a man to be happy mm-hmm. or something. Cause obviously he didn't sound like he was around a lot. Mm-hmm. And then the last line or one of the last lines is the piece of advice from her father that imparted onto her and said that be careful for marriage is a life sentence. Good old dad. Ooh. Good old dad. My dad said something similar to me one time. Oh, yeah? He was like, well, you married him. (laughs) 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 I feel like it's kind of the same. Obviously, the police start looking for the brothers. 
Joseph had recently like give her he gave himself up, but he wasn't living there at the time. He had moved in with his sister or their sisters. And um, after catching Leonata with another man, apparently he left and you know, neighbors reported like bitter fighting over money, constant accusations of infidelity, while drinking bouts in the household. And so he pretty much had an alibi there with living with the sister. And so that just left Henry, who used to be in the Navy. And um, so the cops were thinking that he'd probably try to hop on a ship and leave. And so they put out this description in the paper saying, if you've seen this man, he's dark, bushy hair, very dark brown eyes and a tattoo mark on arm, flower with lady face, also nude. The man or the lady? <laughs> There's a nude man running nude around with man. a tattoo. I don't think that'd probably be too much of a... Um, Flower lady face. Yeah. <laughs> Flower lady face. So anyway, two days after that, uh, he was actually discovered. He gave like a fake name and tried to board this freighter. And the people saw the tattoo and turned him in. And he, uh, in his confession, Henry detailed his motives for the killing while also insisting that in his mind... It had been warped by alcohol. Like he was not in control because of the alcohol, the evil alcohol. And he was enraged over an affair that he believed his wife was having with the couple's landlord. Can I ask how anyone is having an affair in a one room apartment? Like, that's the thing that keeps on getting to me is like, they're all saying that the other ones are having affairs. I was like, where? Like, where? I, in the hallway? I don't like, know. Where? Maybe, I don't know. Maybe, like, when they leave to go do their drinking mm. or whatever, then something, you know. I guess you find a way. You find a way. Sex finds a way. Sex yeah. finds a way, go right? Ahead. Let's see. So, anyway, uh, Henry's version of events, he was, provo- he was provoked to vengeance by Teresa's imminent plans to leave him in addition to her infidelities and neglect of the children. He also resented his sister-in-law for having what he perceived was a negative influence on his wife. Henry did not make it hard, obviously, for, you know, the people to prove, or for the law people to prove that he was, (laughs) I can't think of words, of premeditated murder, right? And they actually... He actually told the housekeeper who found the women the first part in the first part that he should just take a you know a pistol and shoot both of them just a few days earlier and then later that evening the housekeeper saw Henry and the women and the children leave the apartment and everybody was in good spirits and Henry pulled her aside which why the fuck mm-hmm. he pulled her aside and whispered not to be scared if Nettie and her family hear the children crying in the early morning. So he was like up, he was playing on nice and was really up to something. That's like the children were there. Like, that's what we don't, what? Don't, where were they? I, and there's no record right you said room, of where the Did they watch were. him do it? Was it one I don't, room? I don't know. I don't know. I don't think it was one room. I think there were bedrooms. <clears throat> there may have been like one living area mm. and two bedrooms. So anyway, the coroner, the coroner reported that the killer had skilled with the knife saying that Mrs. Henry Moiti, uh, who was decapitated, that the killer knew enough about to cut through the bone, like I said. Not through the bone, but uh, through the joint. And so, again, it was established that Henry worked as a butcher's assistant in New Iberia. 
Parish. He was put on trial for the two murders, and he was actually tried separately for each murder. They found him guilty in both cases and sentenced him to two concurrent terms of life in prison. When he went to prison, he, like, role model citizen, I guess. I guess the Navy, like, came in handy for, like, surviving in prison and following rules and such and sobered him up, probably. And um, he did try to escape. Well, he was made like a trustee, which for such a heinous crime is really kind of weird because somebody that would murder a person that brutally, you know, you would have them locked up like maximum security. Mm -hmm. But they like gave him the position of trustee, which he didn't have to have anybody watch over him. And he like had a lot more freedom to come and go. So about 16 years after his sentencing or after he started his jail time, he like hopped on a train and left. And then for some reason, which you can read more about in the newspapers, he turned himself in. And then just like a couple of years later, he like hopped in a taxi cab and like left again, escaped again. <laughs> kind of a jail. Is I know. Right? <laughs> it, it was a Louisiana jail. <laughs> And so he um, went up north, and they finally caught him and brought him back. And then a few years later, the governor pardoned him, and he only served 21 of that two life sentences, which was almost disasterly because he immediately moved out to Florida, got a new girlfriend, and then proceeded to shoot her in the chest. And it, like, went through her lungs. She survived. He went back to prison for, like, five years and then died of a stroke. I know. Thus ends the story of the 1920s trunk killer. Blah, Henry. Henry. Boo. And that brings me to my last story on Ursuline Avenue. So we're jumping ahead to 2005. Katrina had left like much of New Orleans in ruins. And a lot of houses were underwater. And one of the landladies in New Orleans uh, of an abandoned apartment in Elysia Fields was investigating like the damage to her properties and stuff. And she came across the apartment that had been inhabited by John Henry Morgan and his girlfriend that they had rented from her. John Henry Morgan and his girlfriend at the time had both received FEMA money and then they fled the city after the hurricane. So she's like looking in these apartments and she smells something horrific, which I imagine it That's probably. Well, it probably takes something really horrific because yep. after yep. Cause a hurricane, Katrina, right? I'm sure everything was stinking like mightily up in there. I mean, New Orleans smells really bad on a good day. <laughs> on a good day, yeah. <laughs> for like Katrina post Katrina and how sad and oh, all the deaths. Yeah, very, animals very and everything. Bad. Yes, very bad. very bad. So she smelled something really horrible and she went and opened up a trunk that was left behind and she sees a decomposed body of a woman. So the woman is identified as Polly Pastore, who was a previous girlfriend of Morgan and who was last seen at 735 Ursuline Avenue in 2002. And that's just two doors down from the sausage factory. So Pastore and Morgan met while working at Quartermaster's which was a deli where fresh meat was sliced for patrons. So we have the trunk and the meat connection here. Creepy. And the location. So at this time, Pastore's disappearance, uh, the couple were known like for drinking heavily and drug use and violent fighting. 
And um, when Pastori disappeared, Morgan claimed that she was just tired of New Orleans and left him in the city to start a new life. But what really happened was Morgan killed her, dismembered her body, and stuffed her into the trunk. And then he moved around. He took the trunk and moved around New Orleans with him until he finally left it behind during Katrina, thinking that people would assume that the chaos and her death would be attributed to the hurricane. Which is kind of fucked up. So, yeah. And there's a lot of I'm things. I'm just going to carry this along. Right. Mm-hmm. Well, yes. And his girl, his current girlfriend like, had complained about the smell coming from it because it's very hard to hide the smell of death. Mm-hmm. Things that are dead. And not to mention like the flies. Like, what uh, the fuck? Uh, I just can't uh. even imagine. And I have a trunk very much like the one that they described. And it's like that fucking like cheap ass particle board mm-hmm. shit. And that's like what it So how is it's just gross it's just anyway but he told his uh current girlfriend that there was like a dead rat in the trunk and then left it in the apartment like i don't know if i was that girl first of all i'd been curious no i would have been trying to find that dead rat to throw it out like why are you fucking keeping a dead rat yeah you've done it yourself like you open it up and if i couldn't have opened it up that shit would have been on the curb Mm -hmm. you know no questions asked Gone. I have a trunk like that on my front porch, the old yeah, tiny trunk, and it was actually found by my ex on the side of the road, and we were very curious what was oh in it. Oh, my God. Nothing. It was nothing. nothing. It was nothing. Now it has, like, the paint supplies. <laughs> <laughs> Still looks really creepy, though. Oh, my God. So they ended up, like, you know, um, arresting Morgan, and he claimed that it was a drug dealer that had killed her. And during the trial... Like, they actually fucking, the prosecutors brought the trunk in as evidence, and it was stunk so bad, and it was so gross that the judge, like, had to order, uh, like, janitors to come in and spray, like, Lysol and disinfectant, Uh and they had to, like, clean the carpets, because apparently it stained the carpet. It got into the carpet. They all that vomit of the people who had to smell it, Oh, my God. No. So gross. So gross. But again, making a really valid point of like how heinous this mm. was to be carrying this lady all these years and fucking New Orleans humidity and heat, oh my God. which, Ugh. you know, like all of those old apartments were not air conditioned mm-hmm. well um, and then had been left there during the summer when Katrina, like Katrina was like in August, which is still summer in the South. Mm-hmm. It's like high summer. Yeah, it's um, the worst. It is the worst. <laughs> it's just the worst. It's so oh, my gosh. Yeah, it's awful. So anyway, obviously, he was convicted. But the really fucked up thing is that during the trial, I mean, it's all fucked up. That's extremely fucked up. Mm. But what makes this even creepier is that his behavior was like became really unusual. Like he never admitted to it. And he constantly sat there smiling and laughing the whole time uh, when he was on trial and any time that he talked about the murder. And so, you know, all of these three stories with, you know, the trunk and the dismemberment and the butchery going on happening within like a four house radius on Ursuline Street is like really fucked up and weird and unusual and just doesn't seem it seems more than a coincidence mm-hmm. kind of deal cursed so, cursed so that's the murders of ursuline avenue Ooh. very good and creepy oh. and gross 
All right. Do we need to take a break we again? Don't, I don't think we do. Do we? Are you, are you good? Courtney, do you need, you a, need break? a break? She needs a break. She okay. needs to stand up. All right. Let's I'm, take a break for I'm a second. Pausing. I'm pausing. All right. We are on. Way to bully through a double telling of the same stories. Yeah. Thank you. Well done. I hope. I hope it made as much sense and wasn't. I think it was good. Okay. Good. I enjoyed it. Excellent. I enjoyed it twice. <laughs> good, good, good. All right. Ooh, now I get to drink. Now for something Ooh, completely different. Strong. Beware. It's strong. I know. This is my second. So Ooh. how competent any of the selling is going to be. So um, we got a lot of response from the testicles stuff. <laughs> Sausage factory. <laughs> and... Um, while I was researching the the testicles in every state story that I told on the last show, I came across a story that was bigger than just like a, a three sentence telling. So we're still on testicles this week for me. Yeah, yeah. these are these are the now for big balls story. <laughs> Sausage and balls. That's the name of this episode. Spetty balls. Spetty balls. Um, So, all right. Well, before we turn to balls, um, let's talk about medicine shows. So, uh, in the late 1800s in the United States, medicine medicine shows. See, whiskey. (laughs) Whiskey. Medicine shows. Uh, Medicine shows were a big deal, and. so they were, and you know, they had been in Europe. They did stuff like this uh, a lot, but these were basically like singing, dancing advertisements. Kind of like the music elixirs. man, right? It was a little bit like the, it's like salesmanship mm-hmm. and singing and jingles and to get people excited about something. And I don't know if you've ever seen the original Pete's Dragon that Disney oh, did, the one with yes. the cartoon dragon and the real life people. That's where I see like the wagon with the The medicine. wagon and the dude mm-hmm. with the creepy eyebrows and like yes. Mickey Rooney, right? With the giant he does like playing a plant in the audience right so anyways if you've ever seen really dating ourselves because that was before my time probably before your time it would have been before all of our times in this room when that because that movie was older than all of us just so you know (laughs) i remember seeing it pretty young yeah i saw it really young but it was old by the time i saw it and you too so pete's dragon anyways there was a traveling medicine show in medicine medicine (laughs) i love it medicine show in uh in pete's dragon and that's that was like my whole Helen Reddy was in that movie, by the way, too. Just just so you know. Oh, I know. She's she'll awesome. she'll be your candle on the water. Oh, but my um so according to Wikipedia though, the what they call the patent medicine industry I cannot say the word medicine. <laughs> That's all right. The patent medicine industry was an eighty million dollar business by the year nineteen hundred. And patent medicine means like highly advertised cure-alls. So they're basically snake oils and like elixirs, things that were completely unmonitored and unproven by any scientific no FDA thing going no. on. No Coca-Cola. Right? That sounds like yes. That's, proven. That's you've got this. So they used they used things like scare tactics, jingles, songs, insane promises plants. of every plants and the audience to mm-hmm. sell what they were selling and as funny as this came but it was like all salespeople are not grifters but all grifters are remarkable salespeople. yes so in the rural u.s uh, in particularly like the south the midwest and the mess the west 
Like people ate up these traveling medicine shows. Oh, yeah. And you know, there's also it's not like there's like tons of, you know, entertainment out there for right. everybody. There was either. the circus so it is a show. and the evangelicals. Exactly. Tents, tents and more tents, like mm-hmm. we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Right. So I always kinda wondered why, like, you know, word still gets around from town to town about people that are like shysters, right? Mm-hmm. So I was like, why do these guys not get run out of town? And part of it is because of these fake testimonials. They put plants in the audience to say, oh, you did this for me. You did this for me. And part of it is, like Courtney was just alluding to, these fake medicines that they sell, they're addictive. Because the reason they work is because they are filled with opium, cocaine, and alcohol. So people feel better when they take them. So, like, (laughs) right. So if you are, like, part of a very religious community... And you want to get your drink on, right. then you're like, oh, but, you know, this was prescription. Yeah. Sorry. This is like I the doctor. The doctor says, I need this to live. Exactly. Yes. That, that doctor over there with the pointy beard. <laughs> that's much right. different from the opioid crisis of the last time. Exactly. Yes. Yeah, there's a whole Legal lot of heroin. relevant shit in this story, by the way. So listen, listen closely. Listen, let me tell so, you a tale. <clears throat> into this environment... In 1885, is born John Romulus Brinkley. Oh, great name. Isn't that a great name for a showman? Mm-hmm. John Romulus Brinkley. He was born in Betta, North Carolina, Jackson County in kind of western North Carolina, I think. And his daddy was a poor traveling preacher and country doctor who had served as a Confederate medic during the Civil War. Um, questionable ethics in his past, too. John Sr. married a woman named Sally Mingus when he was 42 years old. But John Jr.'s mom was actually Sally's 24-year-old niece who had moved in with the couple. She dies of tuberculosis when little John is five and dad dies when he's 10. So John Romulus Brinkley calls his father's wife, Aunt Sally. <laughs> I mean, like, there's yeah. there's some rough life shit happening in this family. I had a lot of <clears throat> ancestors that were traveling uh, preachers. Mm-hmm. And I'm just pretty sure that i have a lot more cousins than (laughs) you know than people talk about just saying that's the cousin nobody talks about cousins (laughs) i'm just stretching i know courtney's over there like reach reach to the sky reach to the sky um praise (laughs) praise jesus praise pamela pumpkin um being the illegitimate son of a doctor preacher with a really rough upbringing, this kid grew up probably really talented at grifting, like mm-hmm. from a very young age. Um, so, like, there's stuff I'm skipping, but you know, when he's in his 20s, he marries a, a woman from North Carolina, Sally Wilkes. And over the course of their not very long marriage, they have three daughters. He and Sally together join a traveling medicine show. They pretend to be Quaker doctors hmm. selling one of these patent medicines. And they do okay, but they don't do great. Um, and then he kind of starts bouncing around, trying to find work different places, doesn't spend a lot of time at home, moves to Chicago at one point, and enrolls in an unaccredited college called the College of Eclectic Medicine. Hmm. So I guess in this time period, eclectic medicine meant we're not like like pharmaceuticals medicine, but we're also not herbal medicine, but we're also not like electro medicine. We're like everything all mixed up. And there really wasn't a whole lot of merit in a lot of, they may have learned some legitimate things, but there wasn't a whole lot of merit in the theory overall. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so he's, while he's at this college, he's introduced to the concept of glandular extracts. 
So like the, um, you know, your lymph nodes or your, you know, pituitary gland or your, you know, gonads. Right. <laughs> um, and how these, how these impact human behavior. So it's a fad medical concept at the time, this whole like gland medicine that is showing up in the newspapers and people are kind of starting to hear about it. And it's, there's a lot of hubbub about it, but there's really not a lot of scientific backup about everything that people are hearing. So he right. just knows this is what people are familiar with and they know there's buzz. So I'm going to grab onto this. Right. So, um, he drops out of the school. His wife leaves him because he's never around. He uses this info about gland medicine to start up a new scam. So in 1913 in Greenville, South Carolina, he and a partner start a little, little shop called the Greenville Electromedic Doctors. And he says that it's based on electric medicine. I don't even know what that means. Like, how do they have, well, I guess they, it's 1913? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, I mean, this was, this was what probably not too different from the time when people were using electrodes for all kind of mm. mental health issues, all kinds of stuff. Mm particularly on women. And, mm -hmm. um, but this was, this was targeting men. So he said he was based on electric medicine from Germany. He put ads in the newspaper targeting impotent men from Germany. What? Are they going to shock their nuts? Oh, wouldn't that be spectacular? German sausages. Um, so, <laughs> Well, he knows that with all this, uh, with all this glandular theory going around, um, and virility being something that above all things, like the most impoverished man will find a way to pay for. Yeah. Um, he promises that he has an injection that will cure men of impotence. And so he charges $25, which in 1913 is about the equivalent of $700 in today's money. Damn. And shoots them in the ass with something that he says is medicine. Oh my God. Um, over the course of a short amount of time, he's basically run out of Greenville for bad checks, unpaid bills. And later he was arrested in Knoxville and extradited back to Greenville, jailed for practicing money, medicine without a license and for writing bad checks. But he wasn't jailed before he met his next wife named Minnie Jones. So he marries Minnie. And in 1914, after her dad bails him out of jail and pays part of his court fines oh my for God knows, this dude was a God. charmer, right? He must have Obviously. been, yeah. Um, John and Minnie moved to Kansas. And Brinkley, John Brinkley, basically buys a diploma from another eclectic college called Kansas, Kansas, <laughs> Kansas City Eclectical Medical University. That's but, a really, that's a mouthful. And, um, well done. So, and, but it's, they called it a diploma mill. So, mm, like, you could yeah. attend classes there, but uh, it's, they like just, it they, might not have been necessary. It's like, yeah, write $50 and we'll send you a piece of paper. Yes, yes that's kind of what it was. So, they gave him, the, the, the diploma from this place gave him license to practice medicine in eight states. Um, so, he sets up a clinic in, in Milford, Kansas, a really, really small town in Kansas. And this is where the big story starts. Now, I know this is the strange South, but there's a lot of Southern connection here. He was originally a Greenville guy, got arrested mm -hmm. in Greenville, and there's some other stuff too. So, there's a movie that um, drew me to this because, you know, when you're searching balls stories in the South oh for the God. last episode, <laughs> you come across this movie called Nuts with an exclamation point. <laughs> And um, this is not to be confused with the 1987 Barbara Streisand movie Nuts that does not have an exclamation point in which she's like a high rent call girl who kills Leslie Nielsen in a bathtub. That's a totally different movie. Oh, I don't know that. I don't movie. either. It's actually pretty good. You should look it up. I need it. I'll put it on It may list. be Leslie Nielsen's best, like, 
like dramatic oh, performance really? ever. Wow. <laughs> yes. But um, he dies in like the spoilers really, really early on. Anyway, so the movie Nuts with an exclamation point, which I watched for this story, highly recommended. Um, illustrations are hilarious and fun and the way that they tell the story is is pretty smart is it tongue-in-cheek kind of very okay and um so that's that's the beginning of this story that they tell in nuts but it's it is the story of john brinkley but it's the story of john brinkley from brinkley's point of view and the way that brinkley tells his own story when he's in this clinic in milford kansas a farmer a poor farmer comes into his modest clinic and says I have had trouble satisfying my wife. I just can't quite, you know, and in all the humming and humming that, that men will use to have these conversations, um, says he wants a cure. And Brinkley's like, I don't have anything. And the farmer looks out the window, sadly and wistfully, and sees two goats fucking in the yard. Uh. And he turns around to Brinkley and says, I wish I had his energy. Why can't you just give me that goat's energy? And Brinkley laughs. And then the guy's like, no, like, for real. Like, just give me that Billy Goat's testicles and I could satisfy my wife. And Brinkley's story goes that he, after much pushback, he's convinced by this farmer that he's going to do a surgery to transplant Billy Goat testicles (laughs) into this man to cure him of impotence. God. And um, (laughs) he does a surgery. And the guy comes out of surgery and goes and fucks his wife and has a baby and history is made. Okay, this is the movie, though. This is the story that Brinkley shares with the nation. And I'll tell you how in just a second. Well, f- okay, first of all, let me, let me interrupt here. Mm-hmm. I'm sure <clears throat> the wife was disappointed in not having <laughs> sex with the farmer. I'm, I'm sure. sure that was her number one complaint. I'm sure she's the one who sent him there. About that farmer. Yes, I'm sure. Damn it. <laughs> Damn it. I know. Jebediah. <laughs> you just, just can't not, get it up. Just not doing it in bed for me. Yeah. Like, I work hard all day with your fucking laundry. Mm. I'm ready to get down. <laughs> like a billy goat. Like a billy goat. <laughs> Bring it. Um, yeah. Also, they had a baby after this. Mm-hmm. We already learned about what happens if you try to do testicle implants. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> that was you part keep... of what got me on this is that we learned as part of it. Was that in the after show? That was my extra testicle facts was that if you implant testicles from another person. It keeps the sperm from the other person, the sperm, at least for a while. Yes. It said, you so said. it's not like you're creating your own babies. You're creating other people's I'm babies. I'm going on whatever you oh, said. I didn't research yeah. facts, I didn't but... research. <laughs> It either, but that was what I found out. But they had a billy goat baby. There, so yeah, so they had a, a totally human baby after mm. this surgery, okay. and um, so anyway, so his story, like none of us is buying this, right? Mm-hmm. Like none of us buys this version of of things. Um, so really, what he's done is he's used this fad obsession with glandular studies to create a new magical elixir and um now he has more resources and he has a diploma and he's honed his sales skills and he's in a town where Mm. nobody knew him before Mm -hmm. so nobody knows his people Mm -hmm. nobody knows he's the bastard son of a preacher from the mountains and he's gotten arrested in greenville like nobody knows any of this right and so he as far as they know is a completely respectable new you know diplomaed licensed medical professional man that yeah i'll they want all their daughters to marry. Exactly. And so he starts selling goat gland transplant therapy, a surgery for $750 a procedure, 
which in, and this is in 1920. So in today's money, that's about $10,000. And people flock to him for it. Mm -hmm. So he, so one of the things he does is he pays a man named Clement Wood to write a biography of him that is filled with his versions of everything that's ever happened in his life, including like him standing barefoot in the lobby of Johns Hopkins University and being like poo-pooed by the president of the university who won't let him in because he's a poor boy who just wants to follow in his father's footsteps. And then he goes and makes his way at Kansas eclectic. I mean, it's just like, it's absolute lies. Sounds like a Mark Twain story. Yeah, it does. <laughs> mm-hmm. And it, there's a lot of the that whole tale. like storytelling yeah. aspect of this, but he's a pathological liar and he's doing it to take advantage of everybody. So he has this biography published that's 100% false and he sells it and gives it away at all of his medical offices. So the only thing that people in the area know about him is what he is allowing them to know and none of it's true. Right. So he's kind of a genius oh yeah like by american standards right (laughs) so the book claims things like famous people have come to him for the goat gland treatment including valentino um president wilson and williams jennings william jennings bryant like he's got this and the book has all these people that have come to him for this transplant goat transplant therapy none of this is true right he buys his own herd of goats And he keeps them in a yard out behind his clinic and has patients go back and choose the goat they want the testicles of before they have the surgery. And he will be at the goat with the largest balls, right? right? Poor Billy. Poor Billy. So quickly, quickly, he makes a fortune. And builds community buildings inside Milford. He builds a sanatorium. He's building a hospital. In 1923, he has this epiphany that radio is the next marketing tool of the future, and he wants to start a radio station. So he starts the first radio station in Kansas and the fourth radio station in the United States. And it is at that time the most powerful radio station wattage in the world. So it reaches further than any other radio station. It's called KFKB, which stands for Kansas First, Kansas Best, but he starts calling it Kansas Folks Know Best. And he is the sole proprietor of this station. And you can hear it pretty much across the United States because of the power of the signal, um, or at least in good, huge portions of the states. Um, And the whole purpose of this radio station is to peddle his surgery and the other patent medicine products that he sells, including cancer-fighting toothpaste and mm. Mayan vision-improving cream. Whoa. Like, it's bullshit. Wow. And um, so he creates these expansive infomercials on this mm. on this radio station that are filled with promises and just spattered with biblical references, too, just for good measure in the oh, happy yeah. Midwest and South. And... Um, since his daddy was a lay preacher, he just like can pull this shit out and he's used every knowledge that he's ever collected to scam the entire country. And um, he creates this show called the medical question box, which like people thought like Dr. Ruth was scandalous Mm -hmm. when she came out, but he was 1920s Dr. Ruth. So he was talking about impotence and sexual dysfunction and all kinds of medical questions on the radio with a call-in question show. He had a team of secretaries going through bags of letters every week because they got so many people. 
You know, that has got, like, for somebody, for a young woman in the 1920s to be reading letters that I'm sure discuss Mm -hmm. and detail problems Mm -hmm. with impotence and stuff, that that was, like, scandal. 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 So, um, like, he, this show became super popular. I'm sure. <laughs> he, made, he made deals with druggists and pharmacies across the I country to carry his products and medicines so that he could prescribe them over the radio. So if he read your letter over the radio, then you, that counted as a prescription, oh. and you could go to your pharmacist and get his medicines prescribed to you because of your contact with him on the radio. Wow. Um, so it was like, he had a pair of himself. Right? Oh, seriously. God. So it's all these adverts interspersed with country music. Um, but here's the other thing. Most of the country doesn't know country music in the 1920s. So if you're not from Appalachia or maybe Texas or, um, I mean like people think of hillbilly music, but they don't know country music. And so he's in Kansas and he's like, okay, I'm going to put on the music that these folks listen to. And so he really um, launches country music as a legitimate genre through this radio station that he really just created to advertise his own products. That's so fucked up. (laughs) Um, So, and over time he's developed enemies in the legitimate doctoring business. (laughs) Imagine. So the editor for the journal of the American medical association, his name was Morris Fishbein. And, um, he really didn't have a lot of power. He didn't have a lot of money, but, um, and he was, he was an editor, you know, I mean, what, but he starts writing articles calling out like quackery Mm -hmm. in these kind of industries and calling out Brinkley personally more and more and more. And he developed a complete vendetta against John Brinkley. Um, So in the late 20s, Brinkley is planning another hospital expansion in Milford. And at that time, the AMA launches a a campaign against him that's spearheaded by Morris Fishbein. And so in 1930, as a result of this, both of his licenses at the same time, his Kansas medical license and his radio operator's license are revoked. Good. Good, right? Exactly. So he immediately, that same year, runs for governor of Kansas. Of course he does. (laughs) Because what what better career, right? I know. For a dishonest marketer and a pathological liar. Um, So it's it's weird that as a testimony to, like, how good he is at what he does, he has no political background, he has no sensible platform, and he is not running with a party. He is a write-in candidate. He really just decided last minute he was going to run for governor, right? He almost wins. Wow. Like, he does it by pandering to what people want and what they're afraid of and alienating their reason. Hmm. Sound familiar? Yeah. <laughs> so he promises a man-made lake in every county in Kansas. Dear Lord. <laughs> I mean, like, he promises free health care and free medicine for everybody. And then um, it's like, he, his slogan was borrowed from a laxative. This is my favorite part. Oh my his slogan was, clean out, clean up, keep clean. But it was actually a laxative slogan <laughs> <laughs> that he took and plagiarized as his campaign slogan. Oh my god! And so he built a he built a sound truck. It was like a giant, like closed ice cream truck with speakers on the sides. It was the first one that was ever built to to broadcast messages from his campaign across the streets and had people drive it up and down the street. You could just like use his power for good, right? You know. And so he's like, he's comparing himself in all of his campaign stuff to Jesus being persecuted because well, he's just sure. had his licenses mm, revoked. Hunt, you and know, the only you know. reason he loses is because they, the, um, 
election commission, I guess, illegally decides that if people spelled his name wrong on the write-in, it wouldn't count. So they had to put J period oh, yeah. R period Brinkley. And if they left any of that out, the, the vote wouldn't count. And that's right. not legal for right. them to do. So if they had done it legally, he would have been governor of Kansas. Damn. And that's like, but he didn't want to win. He just wanted people to like be aware of him. Right. Mm-hmm. So he loses that race and he decides, okay, well, I'm getting out of here. These people hate me. You know, I'm just, I need to start over. So he moves to Del Rio, Texas, which is right on the Mexican border. And he starts up all the same racket again. He builds a hospital in Del Rio. He stops doing the goat transplant surgery and starts doing prostate surgery, which is the new fad, like, you know, medical treatment for $250 a pop and probably doesn't do jack shit for anyone. And, um, now we're we're in the great depression now yeah so he announces that he's developed a new formula this is an injection that he can give a man six vials of it for a hundred dollars each over a course of treatment he calls it formula 1020 and says it will do the same thing as the goat gland surgery without invasiveness and people start flocking to him in del rio for this new formula 1020 injection that he can give them He makes a deal with Mexico to build a new radio station to replace his Kansas radio station that he's lost. And it's called XER and it's on the Mexican side of the border, transmits its signal in English back into the U.S. And the signal is so powerful that it can be picked up in 17 countries. What? What? (laughs) That's what it says. Oh my God. Whether that's true or not, you could hear it in Canada. You could hear it across the entire continental U.S., and it was a million watt radio station that was not like overseen by any radio. Oh commission. my god! People were like probably that? growing three heads. Birds like... died near the station. Oh, yeah. oh my gosh! People could pick it. You know when they make jokes about people picking up the radio on their fillings? Yeah. This is the radio station that that joke came Actually from. Actually, could do it. That's why people because I mean, they can't could even pick up NPR from Birmingham. Oh here. I know, they right? Could, they could touch. Away. They could touch their bed springs, and have like. If they put their ear to their bed springs, they could hear this radio station. Oh my God. You could you could get it in your fillings. You can get it in your bed springs in your car headlights. Um, the Carter family, you didn't even need a tuner? like June June Carter. Yeah. Um, well, Car- because Cash, there wasn't other Johnny radio. Cash. Like, oh. so you don't need it. I mean, it's just like everything picks it up. But like the Carter family moved to Del Rio for an entire seasons over the course of three years to perform on this radio station. And um, so much of their fame, like everything that launched them into, you know, the Opry and Nashville and everything like that came from John Brinkley. That's so weird. And um, they, they made jokes that you could hear their show on the barbed wire fences in Kansas because that's how strong the the signal was from this radio station. So there's a site called Muddy Roots that talks about the radio station and says that um, Tennessee Ernie Ford, Roy Rogers, Patsy Montana, Gene Autry, Little Jimmy Dickens, Red Foley, Shelley Lee Alley, Jimmy Rogers, Cowboy Slim, and the Carter family. All of these were regular performers on XCR. Um, and they used to just be able to play in town schoolhouses and churches. And now all of a sudden they're on this international radio station and being marketed to international markets. So this was like a very small form of music that all of a sudden everybody got to hear. And it was because of this. So even in spite of all this, the adverts were still the focus of his station. That's the whole reason why he has it, right? So XER broadcasts infomercials that he's written for Brinkley Medications and Procedures and other things like there's a hair dye called Colorback 
that was later discovered to have lead as one of its main components that was remarkably effective. And I shit you not, he sold autographed photos of Jesus Christ on this radio station. Oh my God! (laughs) (laughs) And people sent him money. Oh, man. So, because he was broadcasting from Mexico, the FCC really had a hard time figuring out what they were going to do. And in 1934, they passed the Brinkley Act (gasps) that was written especially for him. Nobody else. It was specifically written to stop him from broadcasting in Mexico. And even then he found a, like a, a, a workaround for it and still managed to keep on going. So he does more and more like God talk on the show. He sets himself up as like a persecuted Christian and does all this. Meanwhile, he buys three yachts and a I've fleet of say, What is he worth now? He lives in a mansion with a pool, its own exotic animal garden, and a series of fountains that dance to music to a door crowds every Sunday night just like the Bellagio in Las Vegas oh Oh my god and while he's in Del Rio and running XER which only lasts for five years some estimate he makes 12 million dollars wow in the depression 12 million in the fucking depression so Morris Fishbein this editor from the AMA never gives up taking down Brinkley God bless him. He keeps on. The ones who took down Dr. Day. Exactly. (laughs) He's like, he's the lone voice of reason. He's like, I'm not going to give this up. And so he keeps on writing attacks and writing more attacks. And they get more and more scathing. And finally, in 1935, Brinkley commits the ultimate act of hubris. This life-changing mistake. He sues Morris Fishbein for libel. And I'm like, what kind of narcissism does it take exactly. to sue someone you know is he could telling just, the truth? He could just like, if he would just like stop everything he set for like multiple lifetimes. Exactly. Right. He should be fine. Right. He should be fine. But and I seriously, all I could think of is this is the same thing as standing in a crowd of people and saying you could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and you wouldn't lose any votes. Exactly. Like it's that kind of narcissism. Right. And so he takes Morris Fishbein to court for libel. And he brings a troop of high-powered lawyers and all these patients who have listened to his show and who support him and who love country music and people who've said that they've got successful surgeries and procedures from him. And um, here's Morris with a lawyer, Mm -hmm. and that's it. But as soon as he starts trying to bring up these patients, the judge rules that patient testimony is not expert testimony, and it's not allowed in court. And the entire case has been built on patient testimony. So the defense starts calling experts. And here's what the experts say. Doctors say goat gland surgery is ineffectual. Can you imagine? Hmm. Brinkley didn't even transplant glands, transplant glands anyways. What he did is he cuts, uh, he cuts the scrotum. He takes a slice of a gland, if he even does this, and just puts it in there. He doesn't sew it in. He just sets it on top of what's there, sews it back up, and leaves it. I wondered. It doesn't fuse. Even, yeah. There Does is no blood flow infection? to it. Exactly. There, there, there were later malpractice lawsuits I'm because, sure. yes, there were infections. Mm. And so um, it, it basically, like, he just basically left it there, and it either sloughs off or becomes scar tissue. And everything, and they prove, like, it, they said basically he could have cut them, sewn them right back up, and been just the as effective. Mm-hmm. He may have done that, really. He may have done that in a number of 
cases. So they basically go through all of the treatments that he peddles and disprove them one by one. The formula 1020, which is the injection that he says that would replace goat gland surgery, doctor analysis shows it's 1,000 points distilled water and one part blue dye. And he's selling it for $100 a vial. Wow. So he's selling water with one drop of blue dye in it. And he's, people do $600 for the course of treatment in the depression. So someone mm. had to go in and like pretend to be a patient for him and get this information. I'm how not sure how they that? did that part. That they may have, yeah. but, um, and, and I mean, maybe cause Fishbein sounds like he was like after him enough oh, that yeah. he would have sent somebody to do mm-hmm. this. But so all the effects from his procedures that these patients were, they were placebo effects. Yeah. And all of these happy patients mm-hmm. are sitting in the galley listening to these doctors mm-hmm. say, this was colored water mm-hmm. and they're starting to flip out. So he takes the stand, Brinkley does, and lies profusely, just like just spits lies the entire time, talks in circles, and they they can tie him up easily because he can't even tell his own story correctly. Mm-hmm. And then the defense brings in nurses who say he performed surgeries drunk, say he called patients Ooh. yokels and old fools while they were under. Ooh. And they bring in former patients who said he did irreparable harm to their health Mm. through the surgeries that they did. So, of course, Fishbein wins this. And then victims start coming out of the woodwork, suing for malpractice. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, you find out that the IRS has been after him for back taxes. The Postal Service has been after him for mail fraud. And everything just crashes. Mm -hmm. All because he sued someone for lying about him. Like, he couldn't take it. So XER, the radio station in Mexico, closes mm-hmm. down. His house is taken. His health declines so rapidly that in three years he is dead mm-hmm. of a complication from a blood clot. So he dies in May 1942. So the weird thing about this story, the one weird thing, mm-hmm. is that John Brinkley legitimately brought America cars that blast political slogans, <laughs> infomercials, call-in sex advice shows, the popularization of country music. And in 1947, XCR was reborn as XCRF, which is the radio station that debuted Wolfman Jack, who was the DJ that brought rock and roll America, uh, rock and roll music into popularity in America. Mm -hmm. So he brought all of that. Mm -hmm. But like you were saying, like, if only he had used his powers for good, Good. you know? Right. So the best quote, though, from this movie that um, that I got a lot of its information from and I'll share the other resources and everything on the page, too. Penny Lane was the director of Nuts, the movie. And the best quote on their website is, I believe that more than any single other human quality is our love of great stories that makes us so endlessly susceptible to being conned. Mm -hmm. We believe the stories we want or need to believe, and we believe anyone who tells them to us. Con men know this. So do politicians, propagandists, pitchmen, cult leaders, televangelists, pickup artists, and manipulators of all kinds, including documentary filmmakers. I was going to say, podcasters. <laughs> <laughs> podcasters. Yes. So anyway, Nuts the Movie is available for render purchase from iTunes. I highly recommend it. I, I spent five bucks on it, and I should have probably just bought it, because I'd probably go back and watch it again. But um, yeah, the, I was just fascinated by oh this. I was like, how the fuck God. did you do all this stuff, you asshole? <laughs> but, oh, my um, God. So that's the story of John Romulus Brinkley. Wow. From North Carolina. It wasn't all about nuts at all. No. Not no. much at all. <laughs> I got to say screwed him on the internet radio. <laughs> <laughs> internet radio. Happy Mardi Gras. Happy Mardi Gras. Happy Mardi Gras. We'll talk to y'all later. Okay, bye. Bye.
Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and check out our website, thestrangesouth.com. All our social media links are there. And for extra fun and goodies, join our Facebook fan group, Fans of the Strange South Podcast. And if you love us so much that you want to support what we do and get bonus episodes and behind-the-scenes photos and videos, please consider joining our Patreon, Patreon, Patreon at www.patreon.com slash thestrangesouth.com.